Hey folks, we are back with another, albeit belated, episode of Radio vs. the Martians. I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And I think a little bit of explanation might be in order. And an apology. Yes, we are very sorry that we didn't have an episode for August. However, we promised you a Conan episode, and a Conan episode you shall receive. Yes, unforeseen technical difficulties. We lost our first recording, so we did it again for you, this time with Panache. I think you're going to love it. I was a newbie to Conan, Mike was a veteran, and the two guests that we have couldn't be better experts on the topic of Conan. Yeah, this is a really good episode. I'm remarkably proud of it. I hope you'll enjoy it as well. On that note, we actually have not one, but two Radio versus the Mailbag questions that are just waiting on our website, radioversusthemartians.com, for your perusal and your feedback. The first one is, what derivative works of art are superior to the works that inspired them? Yeah, we're talking about remakes. We're talking about things that could be called, quote unquote, ripoffs. Sometimes what comes after and draws from other things is actually better. And we want to hear what you think about it. Also, our second question, have you ever found yourself cheering for the villain to win and the hero to lose in a work of fiction? Sometimes the bad guy sucks. Sometimes <laughs> you actually look at the bad guy and you go, you know what? That's not so bad. I actually think I'm on his side. We have a lot to say about that, and so do a lot of our listeners. So go ahead and join them. Go to radioversusthemartians.com. These conversations are still up on the front page. We want to hear what you have to say about them. And later in the month, we'll have a new question waiting for you. And on the topic of Conan, if you are unfamiliar with Conan, and after this discussion you find yourself wanting to try some out, we want to give you a bit of a head start to let you know where to look. Casey? Certainly I can't recommend enough picking up a copy of any of the original Robert E. Howard stories, but I had a special tangent for this, and I'd recommend that you watch the documentary called Milius about the director John Milius, who helmed the first Conan movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger, and arguably he was the person most responsible for bringing Conan into the public eye, making him a household name. It's especially an interesting look at a director who came up with, at USC, with the directors of the like of George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola, and who was kind of an outsider. An outsider of a guy who couldn't volunteer for Vietnam because he had a medical problem, and he said, oh, I missed this war, and I, I wish I would have been able to be to fight there. A self-described fascist, as <laughs> you always like saying, who went on to make Conan into a cinematic legend to not only match, but obviously supersede the pulp literary legend that he was with Robert E. Howard's original story. So it's a great biopic of a strange, crazy artist, and it has fundamental links to the Conan character, and I recommend it for anyone who's a lover of film or Conan. This month, I'm going to recommend the large phone book size Savage Sword of Conan collections. Now, Savage Sword of Conan was the black and white comic magazine that was put out from the 1970s to the late 90s. And the stories in this were amazing. Of course, the print quality was better than a lot of comics had back then. It wasn't on the pulpy newsprint, so you were able to get much more ornate lines. It was in black and white rather than color. And you can really see somebody do this feathered fine line work that almost kind of looks like those author pictures in the New York Times. Mm. It's amazingly crafted artwork of a type that you didn't see in comic books a lot and also not subject to the comic book code that 
actually censored a lot of the things that people loved about Conan and had to round the corners on the character. Right. There's about 17 volumes of it out so far. Really top-notch stuff. Some really talented artists. Savage Sword of Conan is my Conan. Glorious stuff. And you would be a fool and a communist to not check it out. (laughs) (laughs) And with that said, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to get to that panel. I don't think I've met a person yet who hasn't heard of Conan the Barbarian. This iconic death-dealing Sumerian was born in the pages of Weird Tales magazine and remains the most famous character of the 26-year-old Texan who created him in 1932, Robert E. Howard. Howard's creative output after the creation of Conan was incredible. In just four short years, Howard had written 21 short stories and novellas starring his famous Barbarian, including The Phoenix on the Sword, The Tower of the Elephant, the People of the Black Circle, The God and the Bull, and The Queen of the Black Coast. Mixing elements of ancient history with mythology, horror with fantasy, and pulpy adventure stories with a wonderfully evocative and visceral prose style, Howard can be credited with the creation of the sword and sorcery genre. It's a common thing to hear people dismiss the character of Conan without even reading his stories. Writing them off as derivative power fantasies, people will often foolishly judge them by the example of his many lesser knockoffs in film and literature. What many don't expect from Conan is the diversity of his stories and the character's own versatility. Conan is far from a mindless, one-note killer. He is at times a pirate, a thief, a military leader, a wandering mercenary, a bandit warlord, and eventually a king. Where other heroes of epic fantasy like Aragorn and Prince Valiant are humble, chaste paragons of virtue, Conan stands in defiant contrast. He's cunning, worldly, direct to the point of bluntness, lusty, amoral, practical, and with absolutely no respect for hypocrites, cowards, or people who trade on their title or father's name rather than their own merits. Conan the Sumerian is a character with simply no time for your bullshit. The world he inhabited was no less colorful. The Hyborian Age, in Howard's own words, an age undreamed of existed in a lost mythic era between the destruction of Atlantis and the beginnings of recorded history. It's a lush and strange world populated by ancient temples, exotic lands, murderous pirates, bottomless caverns, nameless demons, evil cults, two-faced noblemen, scheming wizards, and their pet carnivorous apes. To this day, we can see the fingerprints of Robert Howard's work on other popular antiheroes from Mad Max, Clint Eastwood's The Man With No Name, and The Hound from A Game of Thrones. We see the image of this character stamped on every Dungeons & Dragons campaign where the hero cuts a bloody path through a horde of bandits and pockets all of their fancy shit. Surviving Howard's suicide at age 30, Conan's stories have remained in print almost without interruption since the 1950s, exploding the character into comic books, novels by best-selling writers like Robert Jordan, a short-lived television show, cartoons, magazines, video games, two feature films starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, and a 2011 reboot. Conan can be fairly said to be in that rare echelon of fictional characters with Batman, James Bond, Sherlock Holmes, Count Dracula, and Tarzan. With that said, it's time to tread the jeweled thrones of the earth under our sandaled feet because this month we're talking about that famous slayer of monsters and men, Conan the Barbarian. Let's introduce the panel. First, back after a long absence, he was my co-host on the dearly missed Mike and Paul Save the Universe, my good friend and connoisseur of all things pulpy and heroic, Paul Rue. Welcome back, Paul. Thanks, Mike. It's really great to be back. It's really great to be talking with you all again. 
And a returning panelist, he's a columnist for Comic Book Resources' Comics Should Be Good blog, and the author of new pulp adventure stories for Airship 21 and his upcoming novel, Beach Blanket Armageddon. is going to be available next year. Greg Hatcher, welcome back to the show. Thanks very much. And finally, the thoth him on to my mighty set, Casey Doran. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Good to have you here, Casey. Yeah. So let's get this started, and this may be the most obvious fucking question in the world, but Paul, what is the appeal of Conan? We've talked about stuff like this before, uh, back on Mike and Paul. He's a f wonderful fantasy figure. I mean, he's absolutely free. He is a guy who is unrestricted by society's rules, by any kind of cultural sort of restrictions or anything like that. He just does what he wants when he wants and follows his own particular code. He doesn't have other people's values imposed on him. Paul hit part of it. I don't think you can separate the appeal of Conan from the appeal of the world that he lives in. Howard mm. built this incredible Arabian Nights kind of fantasy milieu for his hero to operate in. But then instead of, you know, a prince of the blood or the child of a wizard or a sorcerer's apprentice or something, he puts in this working class Texas tough guy. <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of it, who just proceeds to kick all the tables over. Mm. It's a wonderful two-pronged approach. You have the fantasy appeal of the world, and then you have the appeal of the working-class blunt hero guy who doesn't take any shit from any of these perfumed wizards or merchants or anybody. So, Casey, you're somebody that I know before we did this panel had not read any of the Conan stories. No, no, just the Conan movies. So your experience with this character is exclusively through Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's true. That's true. I mean, in going back and reading the Robert E. Howard stories, first and foremost, I was struck by how old the character is. I mean, he was written in the 30s, for God's sakes. I mean, this is around the same time that something like Superman or Lord of the Rings or these things were actually coming out. What I didn't understand really was that he was a character that was sort of set up in his own kind of grounded prehistoric setting where it, it does exist on Earth. It's not Middle Earth or it's not some other... He's not living in Narnia. No, he's not. definitely not in Narnia. But I mean, the great part is he's not really a hero, nor is he really an anti-hero. He's somewhere in between. He just like is a guy who comes up against some of the hardest, nastiest motherfuckers and makes sure that they get their comeuppance in the end. But he's not a white hat. Like he's not the good guy who makes everything right. He's kind of like Kwai Chang Kang, I'd say, without like all the mysticism and the movie of the week moralizing. Yeah, it's funny because I look at my perception of Conan and I think that on one hand, the appeal of him is obvious. You look at the lushly painted covers of these old paperbacks that he used to have his stories published mm. in in the 60s and 70s and these like Frank Frazetta paintings of this half-naked, muscle-bulging tough guy who's usually has this scantily clad woman clinging to his leg and this gaunt wizard pointing this taloned finger at him. <laughs> the appeal is obvious, but I think at the same time, it doesn't quite do the character justice because I think that people think that moment is all the character is. So I know that my first encounter with Conan, and I'd love to hear what your guys' was as well, was in those Marvel comic subscription ads that they used to have in the back of the book. And this was usually a collage of all of the different Marvel comics characters like Spider-Man and Thor and Captain America all sort of standing in a group together looking up at the reader. And off in the side, there was this weird guy in a loincloth with a broadsword. And he was kind of like Thor, but he had these like really mean fucking eyes. And I didn't know what he was about. He was different <laughs> than everyone else in that picture. And I knew that was Conan. It was amazing because I still hadn't read his stories for a really long time after that. But how about you guys? When was the first time you remember seeing this character? Well, the first time I remember seeing him, 
was it was in one of the regular Conan comics that I got from a guy in junior high. We did a trade and it was, I can't remember the number off the top of my head. It was Conan with Red Sonia starring. The story was called Tower of Blood. It was a little two-parter and it was, you know, it was okay. It didn't really do much for me. What really sold it was a couple of months later, we were up at our cabin on Mount Hood and I was a weird little bookish kid and the idea of camping in the mountains had zero appeal for me. I mean, zero. Oh God, yeah, I'm an indoor cat. (laughs) But the Brightwood General Store carried comics and they carried really cool comics. They had a much better distributor than anybody in our hometown and especially what they had with the magazines. And I adored the Marvel magazine line, but my mother was a very repressed, staunchly Christian lady. And that month from Marvel, I remember this vividly, there was Deadly Hands from Kung Fu with like a bony Bruce Lee cover. And I got that one. And then my other two options were either a Marvel preview with Satana <laughs> or, <laughs> or Savage Sword of Conan. And I knew there was no way I could get Satana past mom, especially if you look at that cover. It's like Satana with a bloody guy clinging to her leg. It's like the anti-Frazetta pose, the power woman Mm. and the bloody guy hanging on her ankle. Or Savage Sword of Conan, which was Conan and a hot girl with a giant ape behind them. Oh, I've seen that cover. I know. I reprinted the column fairly often. It's kind of a thing of mine. Earl Norm did it. Anyway, I got that one, brought it home, and that was the one that just sold me. It was Roy Thomas and Neil Adams doing an adaptation of Shadows in Zambula. And then there was a prose article, David Kraft reviewing, I think it was Viking Press that did those short limited edition hardcovers. It was uh, Worms of the Earth with the Tim Kirk illustrations. He had written an article about that. And then there was a short Solomon Kane story in the back from Doug mentioned Mike Zeck. And Solomon Kane is, for listeners who don't know, another character that Robert E. Howard successfully brought into being. Yeah, absolutely. It wasn't just Conan. It was like this gateway drug to Robert E. Howard. And that was what really sold me. It's kind of funny because what I find most fascinating about this story wasn't necessarily what sold you, but what sold your mom on this. (laughs) I've heard this described this sort of choice to somebody like Henry Kissinger and how he would advise President Nixon, (laughs) which is that you give two options, one that is terrible and one that is unthinkable (laughs) as a way of getting the unthinkable answer sort of like, oh, that's clearly off the table. So choose this one. And it feels like Satana was the one that helped made Conan more palatable. (laughs) And not only that, but you know, what's really embarrassing is I'm 50 two years old. And I finally got hold of that copy of Marvel Preview about three years ago, and I still felt like I was getting away with something. My mother's been dead for a decade. Keeping it under your bed. (laughs) But it's kind of funny when we talk about the things that make Conan and these magazine characters kind of scandalous, but Conan is kind of risque compared to a lot of characters that were appearing in comic books. One thing that I find utterly fascinating with him, and Casey, you brought this up a little bit, is the morality that this character operates under. Sure. This is kind of what makes him unique, not just against comic book characters, not just against fantasy characters, but I think most fictional protagonists don't act in the way that Conan does. I mean, there are stories where he is the head of a band of warlords that are attacking caravans and Mm. taking all of their shit. If Mm. he was not Mm. the main character of that story, he could very easily, with not changing his behavior and decisions at all, He could be the bad guy. Yeah, it's so funny. Mm. It isn't like, I guess I can kind of sketch a few different motivations that you would have for protagonist type of characters. You know, one would be 
lawful good on the D&D alignment scale. Mm. You're just the guy who's protecting the realm, who's doing the right thing for the right reasons. And another one might be neutral good, who just happens upon something and they get dragged into the story. But I think Conan might be true neutral or chaotic neutral. I'm not actually sure which one. He doesn't follow the rules and Mm. he's generally going to get through the situation the way he needs to get through the situation to stay alive and or plunder. But I can't really put my Mm. finger on heroes that really embody his morality, except for maybe D and is true neutral. Well, it's very weird. I mean, basically, if you look at, as Casey was saying, the heroes that kind of follow that Conan-esque morality, in a lot of cases, you're looking more at your 1970s kind of characters, your men with no name or your Butch and Sundance characters who were heroes by virtue of the fact that the camera was on them. Mm. The fact that they could have very well been the bad guys, but the camera was on them. They were shown to be good at what they did. I suppose the closest analog at the time would have been the kind of hard-boiled characters, the sort of tight-lipped private eyes who had a code but really didn't have much in the way of a morality. People like Dashiell Hammett were writing about. Sure. Actually, Hammett's guys were pretty moral. I think for a Mm. Conan analog, you want to look more at the guys that didn't really stand the test of times, the Race Williamses or the Dan Turners, Yep. the pulpy guys that were just much more about the mayhem than the morality. Yeah, Mm. that's something I found really interesting is that the stories themselves are very unapologetic about Conan's attitude. They don't condemn him, but they don't say necessarily that he's absolutely in the right. They just kind of leave it out there and he's your main character and there's a real praise for his prowess, but it doesn't make any moral judgment whatsoever. Well, I don't know that I'd agree completely with that. Conan is the hero of the story, not so much by virtue of the fact that the camera's on him. I think he's the hero of the story because everybody around him is so much worse. Yeah, there is that. (laughs) The morality of the story is, this is just me, my opinion, not necessarily shared by the universe, but I've always felt that Howard's position on this is that civilization itself is so awful that the grungy, blunt, uncivilized barbarian ends up being more heroic than everybody else just because civilization Mm. has ruined everybody else in the city. I think that's a big part of it. And you can see this actually in Robert Howard's background as this was not a Mm. guy who had the advantages that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien had, where J.R.R. Tolkien got to grow up in the beautiful English countryside who was wonderfully educated and encouraged and had access to great education, where Howard was somebody who was only educated because he made an effort to be, that he had access to the library and loved books and loved reading. But his access to, I guess you could say, successful, upright citizen type folks were the people who would come into the Texas boomtowns that he lived in, these rich guys who said that if you gave them access to this oil that they had just found, Mm. that jobs and wealth would rain down on everybody. And pretty soon what you'd have is an empty hole in the ground. Those assholes would be gone and everyone would be there left Mm. with nothing. And I can see his perspective all over the Conan stories because people are constantly looking down on Conan and thinking that he's dirt and underestimating him. And he's smart. He's not a dumb character. I think that's a real misconception a lot of people have. Mm. He's very worldly, and it makes it clear in a lot of stories that he speaks several languages. He's someone who's traveled more than almost all of these people combined. He's seen more. He's done more. He's encountered Mm. more. He's been to more places than these people have largely read in books, largely by historians and teachers that have told them that everything their family has done is wonderful and that the universe owes them this reign over this country or the wealth that they have. Conan, no, he came from dirt and everything he has he earned. 
and mm. is willing to do it the hard way. And there's a real disdain in these stories for people who have it easy. People who have inherited wealth are without a doubt always the biggest assholes in Conan stories. And besides that, I, one thing I felt was interesting is he's not a hero on a quest. He's not born into the role of the savior, mm. the one. He's a bit like the dude in a fantasy setting. The plot happens around him. He tends to stumble into these situations and sort of has to, either through sheer luck or through just brute force, eke out a resolution where he stays alive and everyone else who opposes him gets pulverized. Which isn't to say that he's not intelligent, because he certainly is intelligent for the reasons that you said. And he does give the option to be clever, but he's certainly not on a mission. He's not a hero, and he doesn't seem to have a destiny, except that at the very first story written about him, you learn that he becomes king of Aquilonia, which is... Well, but I guess it's the most of his time, the most powerful extant empire in the Hyborian Age. Yeah, it's funny because he's not destined to any of it. It's right. not like King Arthur where he was destined to be this great person before the first page. It's the mm. same thing like Frodo Baggins had the ring at the very beginning of the story. He was going to be a part of this story whether he wanted to or not. Conan mm. chose to be a part of this story. He left home not because he was forced to or this great powerful thing fell into his lap and he has to find it or destroy mm. it or save someone. It's not like Luke Skywalker where he finds out there's a princess that he must rescue and meets an old hermit. Right. No, he took this upon himself mm. that he was bored where he was and he says, there's got to be something out there that's better than this. I'm going to find it. I have the skill to do it. And it's sort of a sense of self-confidence that he's not like Bilbo. Bilbo wants to stay at home. He's already in the place he wants to be. Conan's restless. He wants to go out mm. there. He wants the quest. But he doesn't quite know what it is. So he's in the course of these stories, he's just trying out different roles. Well, the thing that I get from him is that basically he's self-directed. All he wants is to be rich and fat and drunk and happy, which is a, it's a noble goal. <laughs> and essentially what happens is he sort of goes, oh, he'll be in a marketplace somewhere and somebody will be going, oh yeah, this guy, he's got a statue. It's made of gold. It's got eyes made of diamonds. And Conan goes, cool, I could probably fence that for a lot of money and that could <laughs> finance my drinking and whoring and buy me a, a nice hat. Um, and so he goes off and nicks it. He's not on an epic quest. He's not got a destiny. He just sort of goes, there's an opportunity. I'm going to just grab it. At the same time Paul was speaking, I was getting ready to say, well, yeah, he has a quest. It's a quest for booze and hot babes. You know, he <laughs> lives in the moment. But what I was going to add to that is that the fantasy element of this, I think, comes for Howard himself and the character of Conan, because Howard himself was not Conan-like at all. He was a brooding, dark guy. And I think the template for a lot of his fictional heroes, whether it's Solomon Kane or King Cull or any of the others, they all tend to be dark, brooding guys. Conan is the guy that lives in the moment. Conan is the guy who tells everybody, I don't really care what happens to me in the afterlife. I don't really care whose God turns out to be the one with the mojo. There's rum and hot babes here in the tavern and I've got money and let's go. <laughs> you know, that's really all he cares about. And I think that's the fantasy element for Howard. I think that was what made it so powerful for him. That's why you churned out so many of these stories was that he really enjoyed living in this opposite psyche to his own and trying to channel that guy as opposed to being the brooding mama's boy that eventually blew his brains out. <laughs> One of the things I keep coming back to over and over again when I look at a media franchise or characters that I see get rebooted over and over again is that there's a specific thing I want to get out of that franchise. With Superman, for instance, I want a character that's honest and altruistic and heroic, and I want him to protect people. So when I see a Superman story that doesn't do that, it really grates at me. 
With Conan, though, there's something we all want to get out of a Conan story. And what is that thing for you? What is the thing that you have to have in a Conan story or the thing that you really want to embody what a Conan story should be? All my favorite Howard Conan stories featured a Conan who was an outsider who came in from outside and screwed everything up for the civilized people, whether it's the corrupt merchant or the wizard or the scheming king or the vizier or whatever. Conan came in from outside and just fucked that all up. That's one. Two, there should be mayhem. There should be lots of action and jeopardy and hair's breadth escapes. And thirdly, there should be some kind of a monster, but the monster shouldn't be the engine that drives the thing. In other words, you beat the monster and everybody goes home. That's that's not a Conan story for me. Mm. And finally, the through line of the thing should be barbarism versus civilization and barbarism wins. Yep. Yet blunt human nature is the triumphant force and all the schemes of civilized man are subject to it. That Mm. seems to be kind of a weird Tyler Durden-esque undercurrent in a lot of Howard's work, which is that people who have this inherited wealth, people who have this stuff, they're all liars and hypocrites. And civilization is this face that people put on to tell themselves that we're better than animals. Or, you know, when I kill people, it's moral and it's civilized, even though I'm still having some thug go out there and do it for you. I can sit in here and drink chilled wine and sit on this nice velvet cushion. And I'm civilized because I'm doing it from far away, where Conan makes a big deal out of doing it himself. And doesn't have a lot of respect for people who think of themselves somehow better than him because they have bully boys to do it. So, Paul, what do you want to get out of a Conan story? Well, I think Greg nailed it. With One of the things I love, for me, is the world. I love the world of, of the Hyborian Age. I want a Conan story to be a kind of travelogue. Take me to somewhere amazing. Because Howard's world building is just ridiculous. And the Hyborian Age is this wonderful, grand Baroque period that is just so, so rich and sumptuous. Then you'll introduce Conan, who'll come in and will highlight the inherent decay of it. Very much the world that Howard has built is this world that is very beautiful, it's very ornamental, it's very Baroque, and is very decadent. And so you'll have Conan come in and kind of see the corruption of it and see the weakness of it and stuff like that. Again, what Greg nailed was the simplicity versus the complexity is there's all of these guys who are scheming and they've got plots and plans. And a lot of their plots and plans require Conan to be a dumb brute. For me, the stories I love is where Conan just comes in and he is very simple, but that doesn't mean that he's dumb. And he outwits them at their own game and comes out on top by virtue of being better, smarter than all these like highfalutin guys who think they're so damn clever. What, what it is that I should expect from Conan? Is that the question? Crush your enemies, see them driven before you, <laughs> and hear the lamentations of the women. <laughs> That's what I expect from Conan. Apparently that was cribbed from a Genghis Khan quote, which is interesting when you consider the way that John Milius, the director of the Conan the Barbarian movie. And self-described fascist. And self-described fascist sort of twisted the character to be something. Because certainly Conan was not Genghis Khan at all. He wasn't wanting to conquer the whole world, right? He was just going to get as much for himself. And he didn't, I don't know, did, does Conan think about a legacy? Does Conan have children at not all? Not really. Not according to Howard himself. There Mm. were many writers who came after who built Mm. the whole King Conan legacy and dynasty and were really just trying to milk the franchise. But honestly, King Conan never did it for me. I mean, Mm. I enjoy the one 
novel that features King Conan, The Hour of the Dragon, but he's not king for very much of that novel. He is deposed and spends mm. the bulk of the book trying to get his throne back, and in so doing, he's the wandering tough guy with the sword that I showed up for. Hmm. It seems kind of like that's what Howard saw in the character, too, because the other King Conan story that I read, The Scarlet Citadel, has him temporarily deposed and win it back. It seems like the real appeal of Conan, even for Howard himself, is acquiring a thing, not so much as having it. Yeah. Mm. And that if he already has it and you know the story means that, oh, I guess I have an army now, I guess they can go fight for me. That's not appealing to Conan the character, and it's not appealing to the readers. People want to see Conan get his hands dirty. It just occurs to me that that same part of the character of the guy who acquires the throne gets the power, but that's not really his destiny. He's really just the badass. Precisely that same character element is what the movie character Riddick, played by Vin Diesel, is. Mm. Riddick, I believe, is basically Conan in space. Yeah, I can see a lot of that. With sunglasses on. I could say that Snake Plissken from Escape from New York is very much Conan. Sure. Basically, Mm. he's the good bad man that the authorities Mm. have to call in and hire, assuming that, oh, he's just a dumb criminal, and he gets over on them in exactly the same sort of way because he's clever Mm. and because people underestimate him because they see what he is on the outside and think, oh, look at all this fancy shit I have. I must be really smart, which is Mm. the same trap that a lot of people who are born into wealth have. I must deserve this in some way. I must be really good at what I did. And the fact that those people don't have it, he must be dirt. And then he turns the tables on them every time. And it's opening because that seems to be a kind of an element about how Conan chooses his battles. Conan doesn't discriminate. If he's going to work for someone, it doesn't matter if they're the cruelest, most vicious, baby-killing person on the planet. As long as he thinks the deal is right for him, he'll go along with them and do their job up until the point when they inevitably try to turn the tables around and fuck him. So Conan, even in that instance, he'll work for anyone, right? Yeah, one of my favorite Mm. story bits in anything was in probably my favorite Howard story, The God and the Bull, which is a story where Conan is a thief. And there's a point at which he's caught and it turns into sort of a Conan murder mystery. There's a point where the guards who are interrogating him and he's not giving them anything and saying, you better not start shit with me because I will finish it. And no, I'm not putting my fucking sword down. They find a rich boy skulking in the bushes outside and they drag him inside and say, what are you doing out there? Until one of the guards recognizes that it's this rich man's son and they're ready to let him off the hook right away. And the guards go, "Okay, well, if you could admit that you hired this guy, we'll let you both go because we know who your father is and we don't want to start anything. And the guy throws Conan under the bus saying, what? I've never seen this barbarian. I was just walking home from the tavern. And Conan just goes, you motherfucker. (laughs) And the minute this guy. You're paraphrasing there, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. The minute this guy reneges on the deal, Conan just goes, you know what, you asshole? You're the one who hired me. That's why you're skulking outside the bushes. That's what I want out of a Conan story. I want Conan to be so bluntly honest that it shows that he's not afraid of the consequences of these people who are so used to looking down their nose at him. Oh, you're just a common thug. He'll just sit there. He doesn't need the need to prove himself. He doesn't feel the need to do anything until one of them tries something because he's not a big dumb guy. That's what I love about that story in particular. Conan is a thief. Usually has what I want to get out of a Conan story, which is this guy is smart. And this guy is self-educated, and he's everything in a lot of ways that Robert Howard wanted to be, which is that these people who went to these fancy universities and think that their education is somehow better than his because it comes with a document. I think that's kind of the driving feature here is that I can be better than all of these people who think that they're entitled to something because of their name or because of their daddy. I'm going to prove that I'm better than all of them. 
Well, here's one thing. You just trespassed upon a point, Mike, where I came about reading through the first couple stories of Robert E. Howard, which is, I think it's a little bit like jocks versus nerds. Conan is the biggest jock, and what type of person is inevitably the villain? A wizard, right? Someone with knowledge, someone that has worked really hard to acquire knowledge, who spent a lot of time in study and is trying to apply that knowledge. So in some respect, it made me a little uncomfortable because I was like, this is a jock's wet dream right right now is to be in a world where there are functionally no consequences for just swinging your dick around, smashing whoever you want to. And then really those nerds up on the, you know, in the tower up there who are studying their old books, I can really stick it to them, you know. So that part to me was a little uncomfortable. I want to know how you guys think about that, because to me, it's sort of like I felt a, felt a little bad for some of those wizards. They were just trying to, you know, they were just trying to keep the traditions alive. <laughs> I was just trying to call the herd down there for my spell to make myself god of the universe. <laughs> universe through this dark misbegotten deity <laughs> well I, I was just gonna say you left out perfumed oh yes you perfumed. Get, when somebody in a howard story is perfumed you know they're going down and they're going down hard you have to smell like manliness <laughs> dung but really my very favorite conan story is the people of the black circle mm-hmm. with the uh, black seers of yimsha up at the top of their mountain And my favorite character in there is the apprentice wizard, Kemsa, who gets himself corrupted by a hot little slave girl who's basically saying to him, you're a really powerful wizard. Why do you want to sit up at the top of the mountain and smoke lotus all the time when you can run away with me and we can drink and get laid and have a good time and you can use your magic power to, you know, get stuff? Yeah. Why are you holding these assholes bags? Right. Right. And I just, I love that idea so much. Reading that story, he was my favorite character too. And I was rooting for him to win. And the funny thing is, in a weird way, even though he does some queerly villainous things, like he murders a bunch of prisoners, he's manipulating people to start a war and get stuff going so he can make off with this girl that he's in love with, he actually has more human motivations in many ways than Conan does. And they're actually slightly less selfish. When his wizard bosses realize that he's betraying them, they start attacking him. And the only reason he's able to fight back with his magic is he grounds himself by holding the hand of this woman that he loves. And it's only because he really loves her that he's able to hold out as long as he does until they do the horrible thing and cast a spell that murders her. And even when he's dying, he actually says to Conan, I want my revenge. Give me my revenge. And his last thought is, at least I'll get to see my loved one in hell. Which I guess is really romantic in a fucked up kind of way. <laughs> well, it's, that's about as romantic as you get in a Conan story. There really wasn't a lot of happily ever afters going on in the Hyborian age. Paul? Again, you've got to take into account that Robert E. Howard has a really strong authorial voice. Mm-hmm. You've got to take into account the fact that, you know, he's pretty much throughout these stories is sort of going, this is right and this is wrong and this is good and this is bad and this is something that I'm behind and this is something that I think is pretty awful. Is that, yeah, a lot of it is Conan the Barbarian versus some learned guy. But in a lot of cases, he's looking at what the people are studying and a lot of what they're studying is pretty awful shit. (laughs) So I don't know that it's so much learning that he's against, because Conan is really motivated by learning. Okay, you know, he likes something that's going to get him lots of money and babes and booze, but he's also motivated by the idea of, like, I haven't been over there. I want to see what's over there. Mm. So he does have this level of intellectual curiosity. I think his main issue with the wizards and sorcerers and stuff is that they're looking into the black baby-eating manual of of Nub Shathoth. (laughs) And it's just like, yeah... 
Maybe that's not something you want to look into. The same that uh, the anti-formal education that you've got a master's degree in harvesting souls. <laughs> <laughs> and I can imagine that where he comes by it a bit more honestly and there's a lot more work there where he's not just simply, and maybe this is that question again, this is metaphor, sitting on the top of a mountain right. telling the rest of the world what they should do where Conan is down in the shit. Yes, there are lots of towers and mountains in Conan stories. Mm. Everyone who's anything good lives in a low place. Right. <laughs> or at least on a hill or something. But the higher you go, elevation turns you into a real piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's actually, I never thought, those are the two things, elevation and perfume. <laughs> you put them together. And <laughs> Do you have a pet it's gorilla? It's evil. <laughs> Oh my God. That's kind of funny because you bring up sort of the jock power fantasy. And I think the jock power fantasy is how the three word phrase that I would use to describe a lot of stereotypes about Conan stories and mm. is the barrier along with sort of the covers of, you know, naked people fighting naked people to save naked people <laughs> <laughs> that keeps people from trying these stories out. And there's mm. another phrase that pops up over and over again. And I brought it up earlier in the opening monologue and that's the phrase power fantasy. And I think mm. that this gets repeated by critics of not just superheroes and fantasy, but any kind of escapist fiction a lot of the time, whether you're talking about Hercules or you're talking about Superman. The idea that living vicariously through incredible acts is somehow something to be looked down on because power fantasy as a phrase is almost always used as a pejorative. I want to call bullshit on the idea that any of us are so high-minded that we don't enjoy power fantasy. And you know what example I'm going to give? I'm going to give the example of a TV show that came around in the early 2000s by the name of The West Wing. <laughs> and the character of President Jed Bartlett as played by Martin Sheen. This was a power fantasy for disaffected, frustrated liberals living during the Bush years who were just like, oh my God, I'm just pissed at fucking everything. I wish somebody would go out and kick ass and take names in the name of liberalism. And Jed Bartlett was that guy. He was essentially the Conan for liberals. That's <laughs> no, funny. I had a coworker who's his one line take of West Wing is it's like church for liberals. <laughs> it has a bit of that. Yeah. Can I get an amen? <laughs> There's a lot of that in there. You want to see somebody do incredible things. And yeah. I think we all enjoy that. It's the only political show I've ever seen with a fuck yeah moment built yeah. into it. <laughs> I'm glad you said that because that's my next question. <laughs> the fuck yeah moment is a phrase that I first saw in an article you wrote on comic book resources. Comics should be good blog greg you're gonna have to describe this for us what is the fuck yeah moment because conan stories are replete with them well first of all i want to make it very clear it's not my phrase it's dave campiti is a blogger that came up with it he wrote a blog called dave's long box and he's the one that named it but for me the fuck yeah moment is the moment where it doesn't matter what a character has done up to that point, suddenly you are on your feet cheering for them. And the example that I always give is from the movie The Warriors. The gang movie came out in the 70s. All the gangs in the city are chasing this one gang of kids calling themselves the Warriors because they are unjustly being accused of murder. They've been framed for murder. And it's kind of a, a retelling of the Greek myth of Xenophon is really what it is. But, you know, it doesn't take place in any kind of actual New York anybody's ever seen. It's very... It's like a video game. Yeah. Mm. Which is weird because decades later it actually became a very popular video That's game. That's true. But the Warriors are running from a particular gang called the Baseball Furies, who are very scary. Oh my God, they look so awesome. <laughs> and they're, they're dressed in Yankees uniforms, but their faces are like terrifying nightmare street mime faces. Right. 
I can and, think of nothing scarier. <laughs> and they're grinning like they have fangs, and they're chasing the Warriors with their baseball bats. And in the lead is Ajax, played by James Remar, who is a terrible person, okay? Up to this point, Ajax has been an asshole. He's been mean to everybody else in the gang. He's challenged the leader for leadership and then back down. He has implied very clearly that he's hoping that maybe there will be some rape in their evening at some point. <laughs> and when somebody says, that's kind of rude, he says, what, are you turning faggot? So he's got yeah. no redeeming features at all. He's a, he's a bad... senator these days, I think. <laughs> <laughs> he's a bad person. But they're running from the Furies, and his companion gets a stitch in his side, and he can't run anymore. And Ajax says, you done? And he says, yeah, I think so. And Ajax says, good, because I'm sick of running from these wimps. And he turns around, and he faces down the lead baseball Fury, who is, let me read it, he's terrifying. He doesn't look like a person. He looks like a monster. And he's swirling around his baseball bat, and it looks like Ajax is doomed. And Ajax grits his teeth and says, I'm going to stuff that bat up your ass and turn you into a popsicle. <laughs> and, and that is a classic quintessential fuck yeah moment, because at that point, we don't even care. We don't care right. that Ajax is a bad person. We don't care about anything except, oh, baseball fury, you are going down so hard. Right. And the entire theater is on Ajax's side. That's the power of the fuck yeah moment. And Conan stories have a lot of them. So do we have any favorite Conan fuck yeah moments? Well, I talked about the Hour of the Dragon. I think when Conan faces down the conspirators and the wizard, Zoltathan, at the end of the Hour of the Dragon, and, and he pulls out the heart of Ahriman or the priest of Mitra, whoever it is. I forget exactly how it goes, but mm. he whips out the jewel of winning. <laughs> <laughs> I, I forget what the actual thing is called, but it's the magical jewel widget thing that lets him take down the The evil MacGuffin wizard. of Agathor? Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and suddenly yeah. everybody's like, er? <laughs> Uh, He's got a game genie. <laughs> yes. That's a favorite. Actually, that whole book is replete with him. There's another one when he's rescuing the Countess Albiona earlier in the story, and she's about to be raped or ravaged or whatever they called it. And uh, suddenly he appears and, and she looks up and she gets it before the bandits do that it's actually King Conan and the bandits are all about to be beheaded. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Howard was really good at building these in, but I think Hour of the Dragon has most of them all in one place. Paul, any favorites? My favorite is from the story, A Witch Shall Be Born. Oh, yeah. And it's where Conan gets crucified. <laughs> he's basically crucified, left out into the desert, and he's just such a fucking machine <laughs> that he just goes, no, fuck it, I'm not dying. And yeah, there's a bit where some buzzards are circling around him and they're going to tear his face off. And he's sitting there and he goes, you know what? Okay, I'm just going to drop my head a little. Just like it looks like I'm tired. It looks like I'm going to fucking die. And the buzzard comes down and he just grabs it, like pins it between his chin and his chest and tears its throat out and goes, well, there you go. I've got something to eat and drink for the next couple of hours. I'll be fine. And you just go, what a fucking <laughs> and of course the payoff for the whole thing is at the end of the book where he finally undoes the bad guy's evil schemes and the bad guy's there and the bad guy's like well what are you gonna do about it and he goes here you go and the next thing is like the bad guy's there crucified in the middle of the desert and conan just goes well fuck you i survived <laughs> you try give it a fucking go <laughs> Oh my god. It's not like it's a death sentence. I live. You know? <laughs> Don't be such a fucking baby. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so I think that 
that way he just goes, nah, fuck it. So, Casey, any badass Conan moments that you would like to share with us? You know, I set aside a few things of running through the stories, and certainly the thing about Howard's prose is just so electric. Like, Ugh. it really drags you along there. And so I was trying to capture stuff where I thought that I was really getting that fuck yes sense of like, oh my god, this character. And so one of them is from Queen of the Black Coast, and I'll just read you mm. a short snippet here. Conan stood in the moonlit silence, the dripping sword sagging in his hand, staring down at the remnants of his enemy. The red eyes glazed up at him with awful life. They glazed and set. The great hands nodded and spasmodically and stiffened. The oldest race in the world was extinct. You're like, this man. (laughs) Genocide, Conan. Genocide. Shouldn't have fucked with him. Yeah, exactly. If you don't want to be wiped from the, the, the sands of history, you shouldn't fuck around with this guy. Because he will do it. <laughs> he'll take a moment, he'll brood, and then he'll go off and find the bottom of a cup. I think Casey's really nailed it. I think in a lot of cases, the fuck yeah comes not from what's happened, but how Howard tells it. Yeah. He's such a great storyteller, and the storytelling is so fucking visceral. Yeah. 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 You know, it yeah. really just, he's just such a, an incredibly good storyteller. And I think a lot of that has to do with it. I do too. And I look at a lot of his writing and the thing that I really found is if you're going to draw the comparison again to J.R.R. Tolkien, the other godfather of fantasy, that guy was an English professor. Mm. So he's Mr. Grammar. Robert E. Howard, not so much. And the beauty is you don't fucking care when it's a run on sentence. You don't care that he's making up an adverb because it's just so compelling. There's something about it when he says that Conan's eyes are burning bluely. I don't care that that's not a real word. (laughs) I don't care that frostily probably isn't a thing because it's so evocative. There was actually something that I found a lot, which was there's kind of a knee-jerk reaction from a lot of critics to really dog on this guy's writing style, and I'm not really sure Mm -hmm. where it comes from. Even El Sprague de Camp, who later edited and really helped bring Conan's stories back to life in people's eyes through these reprints of the original stories and these paperbacks in the 60s and 70s, described Howard as almost a very good writer, which is such a backhanded compliment. Right. Is this just a knee-jerk reaction to Pulp? I think that's a lot of it, yeah. I think there was, you have to remember that the big boom for Howard wasn't really in the Pulp era. Weird Tales was not a terribly successful magazine, and Howard actually probably did way better on his sports stories and his westerns than he did on Conan. Conan just kind of broke him through as a solid commercial writer, but I don't think that was where he made his money. The success of Conan Mm. came largely in the 60s through the Lancer paperback editions, and a lot of it is attributable to the cover paintings of Frank Frazetta. It was DeCamp and Lynn Carter that packaged those books, and then they had the Frazetta cover paintings, and they there was a whole sword and sorcery synergy thing going on. That was also when Tolkien hit big on college campuses. That's right. Mm. Hmm. These things don't happen in a vacuum. And DeCamp, you have to remember, he was probably making a fair amount of dough off of this at that point when it started to boom, but he really thought of himself mm. as a historian. He was writing textbooks. He was writing popularizations of historical events, books about, I don't know, the Crimean War or something. And this was, Conan was oh. his hobby. It was his thing Mm. he did to kind of goof off because he started as a fanboy. He was one of the Futurians, I think, or one of those 30s Mm. SF fan club things that, you know, Asimov and Lester Del Rey and all those guys kind of came up together. Mm. And Conan was kind of his fanzine fanboy goof off thing. And 
that's where the condescension comes from. Mm. He really wanted to be seen as a serious writer. I'm a, I'm a professor. I teach. I, I write textbooks. And yeah, okay, I do this sword and sorcery thing. But, you know, that's just for fun. It's not serious capital L literature. And then he, and then mm. he makes fun of people who take capital L literature. There's something, it's like he's apologizing for being involved with this sort of scruffy kind of fiction at all. That's so weird because the one thing that I was thinking about, the comparison to J.R.R. Tolkien has been brought up so many times. I think it's just natural. I think it's a natural consequence. But I kind of put Robert E. Mm. Howard in a time of writers after World War One and before World War Two that are in this sort of space where they're inventing these whole mythologies. They're overlaying commonly known Western mythological traditions upon these huge fantasy worlds. And I put him not just with J.R.L. Tolkien and maybe lesser to C.S. Lewis, but other people like Robert Graves and also H.P. Lovecraft, which of course he was a peer of and a friend of as this class of world builders that are envisioning these extremely huge worlds that are informed by actual history. And for me, that makes him sort of stand apart from maybe other pulp writers that you might say, because I think he was doing some stuff worthy of that caliber of writer. It's just that I don't think he doesn't get credit for it. He doesn't really get credit for it because he, you know, Howard really became popular on the paperback spinner racks of the 1960s. And Mm. we've talked about Tolkien a lot, but in my head, I don't really put Howard on the same shelf as Tolkien. I think of Howard as mm. the down and dirty version of Edgar Rice Burroughs. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Burroughs. I can mm. see that. Yeah. Burroughs yeah. was doing, you know, Tarzan and John Carter of Mars and at the Earth's core. And he was very much working the same turf mm. as Robert E. Howard. But his heroes are all English noblemen types. They're the gentry. <laughs> right. Even Tarzan started as an English lord. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he doesn't He doesn't even get to just be a common guy. Doesn't matter how down and dirty they get. It's okay because we know underneath when once you scrub all the dirt off, they're still in the peerage. So it's okay. Right. right. Mm. And Howard was like the working class guy. And that's the interesting yeah. contrast between those two. There's just as much world building going on. His sure. Mars is just as complex sure. as the Hyborian Age. Mm. But you can believe in Howard's Hyborian Age in a way that you really can't believe in John Carter of Mars. And, and I say this as someone who loves John Carter and the Burroughs books and the Burroughs mythology just mm. as much as I love Howard. But there's an element of fantasy and fairy tale going on there that I don't feel when I'm reading the Howard stories. And that's because the people in Howard stories are just as corrupt and nasty and brutal as the ones that I experienced in my real life. And that's what Howard brought to it. Hmm. He put real people in an Arabian Nights setting. The other interesting thing about the world building, and if I can get back to Tolkien and Howard, is that if you look at Howard's essay on the Hyborian Age, it reads very much like history. It's like, you know, these people were here and they built a civilization and that civilization got wiped out. And the members of that civilization resettled in this period and some resettled in this. And it covers like millennia. It's a massive, massive overview of history. If you look at Tolkien's history, it's all, and then this god figure created these elf people and gave them a magic tree. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're both world building, but I think that Howard's world building is much more rooted in kind of anthropology, whereas Tolkien is much more building on a mythological structure for his world. I can see a lot of that. And when they finally turned J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings into live action movies, a lot of the elements of Robert E. Howard got seeded into it. It's a lot grittier Mm. than what it would have been if they'd done a direct translation. You get to see things like that fight between Aragorn and the Urukai leader at the end of the first movie that was not in the book. And it's a fucking Conan fight. 
including mm. the thing where he stabs the orc in the chest. The orc pulls himself up to the blade before Aragorn takes a step back and cuts the guy's head off with a fuck yeah moment. <laughs> That's a Conan mm. moment injected into Lord of the Rings. Mm. So I think that the sad thing about him being neglected as a figure who gets credit for the creation of fantasy, even though his character has been this massively popular and well-known figure in not just fantasy, but in literature, period. As I said as my opener, I don't know anyone who doesn't know the name Conan the Barbarian. And I don't think we can talk about Conan without talking about his almost unbroken since 1970 publication history from Marvel Comics and then Dark Horse Comics. Marvel got the license to do Conan comics back in 1970. And Marvel's bread and butter had always been their superhero comics. They did the Avengers, Spider-Man, the X-Men, the Fantastic Four. I mean, this is a huge group of characters that that would be enough for most publishing houses. So even though they've always been the superhero publisher, how is it they ended up doing a licensed barbarian fantasy character from pulp magazines from the 1930s? First of all, again, nothing happens in a vacuum. The synergy, the almost symbiotic relationship between paperback spinner racks and comic book spinner racks throughout the 1960s and 70s, I cannot overstate mm. how intertwined those things were. And if something was popular in paperback, especially in the 70s, when everybody in comics in the 70s was obsessed with expanding the medium beyond superheroics, they were obsessed with it. Gothic paperbacks were a big thing, and DC immediately started a series of gothic horror romance comics that lasted, you know, a year and a half. Science fiction looked like it was going to be big, and we got unknown worlds of science fiction. Horror. They finally lifted the restrictions on horror, and you got Tomb of Dracula, Monster of Frankenstein, The Witching Hour, etc., etc. Suddenly it was okay to do all these things. And Roy Thomas was really into sword and sorcery, and he was into these Lancer Frazetta edition paperbacks of the Conan stories. And he went to Stan Lee and said, you know, I think this could really work for us. And, you know, it was at the time that Marvel was trying to expand. They were experimenting with the black and white magazine line and doing all kinds of stuff. And Stan didn't really get it. He wanted someone to show him. And Roy Thomas's original idea was to get John Buscema to work on it. But Buscema was not available. I think he was booked on Thor and the Fantastic Four, whatever he was doing at the time. And so they decided to let this new kid, Barry Smith, try out on it. And they did a little eight-pager for one of Marvel's horror magazines called Star the Slayer that was reprinted as kind of a fill-in in one of the early issues of Conan the Barbarian, the comic. But that little eight-pager was kind of the, the template for what they wanted mm. to do with Conan. And Stan looked at it and said, okay, we can do this. And he green-lighted it. So then Roy Thomas, who was young enough to still be a complete fanboy nerd about all of this. Mm. There are some that will make the case that he still is today, but I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> he certainly was in the early 70s. And he went to the Howard estate and they wanted more for the license than Stan had greenlighted. So Roy made up the difference out of his own pocket mm. for the first couple of year wow. or two of the license to get it going. Mm. And it was a slow starter for them. If you look at the early issues of Conan, it was very raw. Barry Smith's art is frankly not good. You know, if you look at Conan number one and number two, they actually are very ugly comics. They're not well done. Mm. But they were so excited by what they were doing. They were so excited about the idea of breaking new ground and getting out of the superhero ghetto that they both pushed themselves to a degree that they never had before. And suddenly everybody started noticing and they were picking up awards. The I think Devil Wings over Shadazar was the one that won the award. 
Mm. I forget if it was a Shazam Award or an Eagle Award. It was the equivalent of the Oscar, basically. Mm. It was all comics mm. had going at the time. Was it an Eisner yet at that point? No, this was before the Eisners. It was either a Shazam or an Eagle. I forget which. Wikipedia could tell you probably. But that was when it started to get legs. And then they revived Savage Tales as a black and white magazine, and they put Conan in there. And that was where Barry Smith really just turned in, I think, his best, which was the adaptation of Red Nails, the Howard story. Mm. And it kind of snowballed into a phenomenon from there. And then suddenly, barbarians were huge. It's so weird because when you look at what fantasy movies were for most of us throughout the 1980s, uh-huh. it was a barbarian movie where they got some ex-wrestler or bodybuilder to run around in the California desert in a loincloth. Yeah, it was mm. insane the way it snowballed. And that was kind of when I fell into it, when I picked up my first guilty issue of Savage Sword with the giant ape. That was right when the snowball was starting to really happen. Mm. Getting into the work itself, how well do you guys think Conan stories were adapted into comics, not just at the beginning, but up till the present day? And Paul, I want to start with you. I think it's difficult to adapt Conan. Robert E. Howard's writing style is very idiosyncratic. In a lot of ways, he's like H.P. Lovecraft in that, in that while people will go, yeah, his writing is not good, or it's overflowery, or he makes words up, or whatever, it's very, very hard to capture that feel in any other genre, because, you know, people look at it and go, oh, this would be easy to do a pastiche of, because it's so idiosyncratic, but it's really hard to do a pastiche of it that doesn't suck. Honestly, I think the passion which Roy Thomas brought to the Conan stuff is fantastic. You know, I mean, you had phenomenal people working on it. Barry Smith's work came a long way from those early issues, and he certainly captured the ornateness of the Hyborian Age very well. John Brasima was just a phenomenal fit on Conan. And once they managed to get him onto the series, I've read interviews where people would say, you know, if John never had to draw another superhero book, if you could just sit him down at a drawing board and just have him drawing Conan for the rest of his life, he would have been perfectly happy with that. And his work was so physical and so robust. And he's just such a great fit for the character, for the tone of the stories. I think the main advantage that Conan adaptions have is that passion. Because people who love Conan and people who love Conan enough to want to adapt it into comics tend to really want to do a damn good job of it. Whether they do or not is another matter. But you look at Roy Thomas, you look at John Buscema, you look at Kurt Busiek's stuff for Dark Horse early on. These are people who really have a burning desire to do these stories and do them well and do them justice. That's where the comics have it over the movies is because the movie guys are just going, well, I know a bodybuilder. I know some woodland. This will be really cheap. Oh, that's the worst thing you can say about any artistic project. (laughs) I think we can do this on the cheap. Yeah, whereas I think the comic guys are really wanting to do it justice, really wanting to do it right. The movie guys are just trying to grind it out quick and cheap. I think that's exactly it. And I think that passion for Conan comics is why I guess when you compare them to any licensed comic book out there, which like a licensed video game, Casey can tell you, are generally and uniformly shit. That you're like, this is a cash grab and you really have to break through that initial barrier of, oh, you're adapting that other property into a comic, into a video game. But it's that passion that makes these ones different. And I think that's why, unlike a lot of comic books that were based on movies or on books or on video games, they usually last like a year and a half and then they're gone and we forget about it. The Micronauts Mm. lasted a lot longer than I thought they ever would. They lasted longer than the toy. Transformers comics didn't last as long as the thing. 
Star Wars even lasted about 100 issues. So Conan was being published continuously even after the Star Wars fandom had faded a great deal before it flared up in the 90s. And I think it's mm. that passion that kept it going for the character that they'd built him up enough as a comic character. And Roy Thomas, I think, really deserves more credit than any other human being aside from Robert E. Howard himself in the popularity of this character because he wrote every single Conan comic from 1970 to 1980, including the Conan the Barbarian book, the savage sort of Conan, the black and white magazine, which is my favorite Conan, mm -hmm. the Conan the King comic, the Conan the Barbarian newspaper strip, which ran for like three years. His hand was all over this character and really helped guide it during this decade so that when he was done writing him, other people would want to pick up the baton and write it. So mm. I got to ask, Casey, you're coming to this again, primarily knowing this character through Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm. When you look at the Conan comics, do you think that these capture those stories that you read remarkably well? Sure they do. And I think probably the biggest thing to reconcile after having came to the character solely through Schwarzenegger was the Milius movies, and especially because they were produced by Dino De Laurentiis. And so thus they were basically filmed like an Italian movie was, meaning mm. just think of the Man with the No Name trilogy and you'll know what I'm saying, where there's no production sound. All the sound is done afterwards. Sometimes they're even changing the dialogue in the studio afterwards. Conan is, for those movies, kind of the strong silent type, doesn't have too many words. And the comic book adaptations do the same justice as Robert E. Howard's stories does, which says, no, Conan speaks a lot. Conan is very wordy. Conan lives in a world wherein all real communication is done by word of mouth, and he is constantly tripping into these situations where he's in a stranger in a strange land, and he has to announce his intentions and sort of eke out what he's supposed to do on the sheer force of his personality, and that is completely and utterly lost in the movies. And I think that sort of wordiness, like if I have to put a word on it, the wordiness of it is, I think, translated well in the comic books. But then also just the evocative imagery that Robert E. Howard's prose evokes is in some of the stuff that I've seen in the comic books is done very well. Just I think you said, Mike, sometimes the entire character of Conan can be translated by simply an image of him lopping something's head off with a sword, you know, <laughs> like that's Conan. Yeah, I think mm. that the artwork can't be understated as well. I think that when we look at the work of John Buscema, who draws my Conan, when I visualize this character, I visualize the John Buscema version, and a lot of it comes down to the way he draws his eyes. That there is something burning mm. in this dude's eyes that even if he's just sitting on a chair, sipping a cup, just says, do not start shit with me. You just don't want to fuck with this guy. And so much of it is done just through those simple lines, the shadows that he does under his eyes. And when it's inked by Alfredo Wakala, oh my mm. fucking God. Paul, I don't even trust myself to describe Alcala's artwork. How would you sum it up? Alfredo Alcala is one of the most magnificent artists to come out of the Philippines. And there's a lot of competition there. There's a lot of really, really phenomenal Filipino artists. And Alcala, one of the things he started with was a Conan pastiche called Voltar. And if you ever see his Voltar artwork, it is just magnificent. It's illustrative. It looks a lot like the really good old interior illustrations from the, the old pulp magazines. People like Virgil Finley and stuff like that. It's really meticulous, super detailed, gloriously organic. There was this real sort of Baroque 
kind of vaguely Art Nouveau flavored in that it's got a lot of organic shapes and organic lines and this feel of sort of lush vegetation, but this lovely feathery rendering and Alcala's artwork is just so magnificent. And I think when you married that ornate detail and kind of lush organic voluptuousness with Yubasima, who had this really sort of earthy physicality and wonderful solidity and robustness to his work, I just don't think that there was anything capable of evoking Howard's work like it. Yeah, and that's where we're going to get to the movies, which is how a lot of us first encountered the character. Mm. The John Milius movie starring Arnold Schwarzenegger is how most of us came to the character. And I already know the answer to this question, but how well did the live action adaptations of Conan translate the character? Well, they don't really translate very well at all for me. The first two, the Schwarzeneggers, the first one, I remember I saw it in the theater. I was so excited. This was like right when I was in the middle of my sword and sorcery fever. It was like the ramping up to finally we get a movie. And it was such a letdown for me. I mean, the characters, they had the right names. There were like moments that I sort of recognized. Valerio was there, except she was acting more like Belit from the Black Coast. So it was a hodgepodge. It just did not work for me at all. And I'm a guy who forgives a lot. I own a lot mm. of really shitty movies that I'm willing to <laughs> stand up and say, well, now, wait a minute, because there's this and this and this. And they're, you know, they're not all bad, but it just did not work for me. And the second one... I was even more disappointed because that was the one that Roy Thomas actually worked on. He wrote mm. uh, the early draft of the screenplay of that with Jerry Conway. And he did at least get a little bit of revenge because their original screenplay was adapted into a graphic novel called The Horn of Azoth that you can get. It's a Conan graphic novel. You can probably find it on eBay mm. for a couple of bucks. But again, those two were just bitter disappointments. And then the more recent one with Jason Momoa, the Game of Thrones guy. Now, I loved his Conan, but his movie was terrible. <laughs> That's and, the worst. Yeah. That's the worst when good casting is thrown into the midst of a shitty movie. He absolutely nailed it. The word that Howard always used to describe Conan, there were two things. His eyes were volcanic and his movements were pantherish. pantherish yeah. And Momoa had it. He absolutely nailed it. He was that guy. Yeah. But his movie was terrible. What I want is a movie that's like Ray Harryhausen's The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. I want a movie like yep. that, but I want Conan to be the hero of it. I want Jason Momoa's Conan mm. in The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. That, to me, is a Howard Conan movie. I'm on board with that, too. I want them to break this notion that Hollywood has sort of solidified into, where if you have an actor play a character in a movie once and it doesn't work out for some reason, they are blacklisted from that character forever. And I know that we've seen that with the Jonah Hex movie, which, again, pile of shit with a great lead actor yeah. who's great in that role. And it's yeah. a shame that they're never going to get a chance at it in a good movie. Jason Momoa should get another chance at this. And mm. I keep wondering, how do we make a Conan movie that works? Because most of his stories aren't written like the massive epics now. There really aren't a lot of Conan stories with 10,000 person armies coming over the hill to get involved in a CGI clusterfuck. I don't think it's going to happen till we have something that's a hit that's not structured like the Avengers. Yep. Until that echo dies down, we're just going to be stuck with these ginormous destructo porn climactic endings. And I think that's <laughs> that's what would kill a Conan movie. That's You don't want that. I think the other thing is that people have this necessity for, you know, you've got to have a character arc. And Conan and Jonah Hex, 
they don't do character arcs. They don't learn a lesson at the end of it. Right. And there's no origin for Conan. Yes. Yeah. Conan turns up. Where did he come from? He came from back there. But he's not there anymore. He's here now and he's got some shit to do. And at the end of the film, he hasn't learned a lesson. <laughs> you know, something has happened and he, he's <laughs> won out at the end. That's it. He's taught uh, some perfume bastard a lesson. That's yeah. what's happened. Yeah. Somebody else has learned the lesson. Yeah. <laughs> and the lesson is don't fuck with Conan. Yeah, that's the lesson. <laughs> and it's for everybody else. <laughs> Well, if I could just piggyback on that, I mean, I agree with you about Jason Momoa. I think he was great casting. But I mean, aside from the sort of everything needs a Lord of the Rings battle at the end problem with making a fantasy movie, mm. I also thought the first Conan, Schwarzenegger's Conan, was too much like the man with no name. And then I think Jason Momoa's mm. Conan was just too magnanimous. They made him too much of a good guy who cares too much about everybody else, you know? And if they can somehow sell that, if they can somehow sell the getting away from that kind of character, then I think they can get closer to adapting a filmic Conan. I think mm. I might have an answer to this. If we're going to start from scratch and fix Conan, <laughs> which is ultimately the goal, I would think that he would adapt better to an HBO series like Game of Thrones, mm -hmm. where there isn't a desperate need to show massive battles, though you occasionally save up and once a season you get one. You can do the smaller scale stories, Tower of the Elephant, God in the Bowl. These are all very small scale stories that usually involve no more than 10 people. And there isn't a need to make something massively big to make it feel intense and powerful and exciting. Maybe the limitations of television, knowing that you can't have the mass CGI battle all the time, forces you to do the writing. The trouble is, what you're describing is exactly how they approached Sherlock Holmes for PBS and Philip Marlowe for HBO. That's what you're describing. Mm -hmm. The trouble is, the way those shows got sold is they had the cachet of being sort of classic literature. I don't think you can sell PBS Conan. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. Master, <laughs> Masterpiece presents Conan. I mean, no, I think that would be awesome, and I think it would work, and if they tried it, it would be brilliant, but they won't. Because Conan comes mm. from disposable trash literature? Exactly. Oh, I, I fucking hate that snobbiness, and so does Conan. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the problem with the whole trash literature is the fact that Robert E. Howard was a working writer. He was writing for pulps. He was getting paid, you know, a couple of cents a word. And he was grinding this shit out. And he was doing that by necessity. You know, if I can take it back to Tolkien, Tolkien, you know, Lord of the Rings took decades for him to write that. And he was writing and rewriting and putting in plot synopses and working out structure and, you know, editing. And Howard didn't have time to do that. He had to get that shit hammered out <laughs> on his typewriter and sent off so that he would get paid and eat. And I think that a lot of the snobbishness about Howard comes from that, is the fact that he was writing to eat. He wasn't going back. He wasn't doing a lot of rewriting. He was writing for people to read. He was writing something exciting, and but fundamentally disposable. And I think it's one of the shames of Howard's life that he died so early, was that I think freed of that constraint of having to hack this crap out. And he hacked stuff out really well. But I think freed of that constraint, he could have gone on to have been, you know, a more literary writer, somebody like Jack London. Yeah, that's a real shame with him is that, I mean, one, he died so young, but also yep. that he never got to see how big Conan could become. But mm. getting into the time and place of Howard himself, one of yep. the other elements to Howard's stories that hasn't aged so well and so positively is that 
okay, let's just rip the bandage off of it and just say that there are elements of Howard's stories that by today's standards can be labeled sexist or racist. Howard himself, I wouldn't necessarily say he was like a virulent racist. He wasn't like a Klan member or anything. His views were certainly in line with 1930s Texas. Mm. But even putting him in his time and place, I'm reading these stories now. So there's elements that sometimes make me a little uncomfortable. Our good friend Sam Mulvey over at Ask an Atheist came up with a phrase that would describe that feeling at which artists' personal views make it hard for you to enjoy the work that they create. And he called that the card line. Now, the card line is named after famed science fiction author Orson Scott Card, who's famous for really just two things. One is he's a legitimate science fiction legend for creating the science fiction novel Ender's Game. And the second one is hating gay people so much that he has vocally called for the overthrow of the U.S. government. <laughs> it makes it hard for me to want to try his stuff, as great as it is. And I've heard nothing but good stuff about his writing, but his personal opinions get in the way. Now, this stuff flashes a bit into Howard's work a lot. Has it ever seeded its way into a story in a way that made you uncomfortable? In my particular case, no. First of all, I started with the worst of them as far as racism, I think, was Shadows in Zambula with the cannibal killers. I think that's probably mm. the closest Howard got to out-and-out -out racism in a Conan story, as, as far as I know, because the Conan stories are about class war, and Conan's generally on the side of people of color. I mean, he's always their leader, but he's not the leader because of his race. He's the leader because he's the baddest. <laughs> he runs Belit's crew because he's a hard ass. He, he leads the Cossacks because he's a badass. That is the sole measure of worth in Conan's worldview. Are you big enough to cause trouble for me or not? Are you going to get in my way or mm. not? His worldview is so simple that I think it tends to wash a lot of that out of it. Now, if you look at Howard's other stuff, especially his contemporary horror stories, things like Black Canaan or even the Solomon Cain stories where Cain is the white Puritan going through darkest Africa, there you're going to find a lot of stuff that's discomforting. I think Conan gets a pass on most of this because it's the whole world is so not our world. I mean, the people that Conan hates are like mm. Stygians. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck those assholes. <laughs> you know, he hates those friggin' worshippers of Set. I don't really have a frame of reference mm. for that. So right. it's like, well, okay, they're probably. Well, Alan Moore worships a snake. <laughs> <laughs> He's a Conan enemy now. <laughs> He's a wizard. Yeah. He worships a snake. Uh, I mean, it's a good thing for Alan Moore that Conan's not in, you know, <laughs> East Hampton or wherever he lives now, because he'd probably be missing his head. <laughs> <laughs> so, Paul, has there ever been a moment with you that Howard has crossed the card line? In order to prepare for this one, I actually read a wonderful collection of all of Howard's Conan material. And it did start to grind occasionally, but I think that was more in the sameness of it. Not in the sense of, you know, the story started to grind. The stories are vivid and beautiful and skip along at a fevered pace. But Conan is, I don't know if racist is the right term. Conan is a misanthropist. Conan pretty much hates everybody and he can find a reason to hate almost anyone. It's a gift. <laughs> in his King stories, he looks at all the civilized people who are, you know, in Aquilonia and he goes, yeah, they're pretty much soft. And he looks at the merchants, like when, I think in Scarlet Citadel, where Aquilonia gets taken over unjustly the people sort of go yeah we love our new tyrant conan was an asshole you know and he just basically goes civilized people are just fickle idiots who just follow the next guy to come along and promise them a whole bunch of bullshit the merchants are pretty much cowards and scumbags who just suck up to everybody 
he pretty much just hammers everyone. Priests are idiots in Beyond the Black River. There's a guy that he actually likes, who's this woodsman scout sort of fella. And he's Aquilonian. And he goes, yeah, this guy's pretty good. He's all right. But he wasn't born in Samaria like me. I mean, he's learned how to be tough, but he wasn't born hard. So he's still a bit of a wuss. <laughs> like, he doesn't cut anyone a break. I think that's as admiring as he gets for somebody else besides him. I think I can see that, too, with the sexism thing, because there are a lot of screamy McDamsel type characters that pop up who are afraid, but when there are a lot of male characters he's rescued too, that when they act the same way, he speaks with the same derision. So I guess I could put it off on that, that he just hates whiners and complainers. But couple that with the fact that there are a lot of strong female characters yeah. that pop up in Conan's stories. Yeah. Valeria we mentioned before, then there's Belit. Belit, the pirate queen, who's Conan's lover in one of the stories. Mm. And they're like equals. Not only is she e the equals, she's the captain, he's the first mate. It's like, she's Picard, he's Riker. If Riker and Picard were robbing other ships and fucking each other. <laughs> <laughs> Fan fiction! <laughs> well, on the card line bit, that certainly stood out to me. Conan refers to any character with dark skin as the blacks, right? Like, using the terminologies mm. you would imagine in the South. And he mentions at one point in time, he only prefers the woman with milky white skin. He's mm. someone who won't even sleep with someone. So it shifts you a little, right? Like... And you do have to think of it as a product of its time, but, but you should also give him credit, like you said, Mike, for the fact that there is a sexism that's probably inherent to just this, the period of time that it's supposed to exist. Need we remind you that the Hyborian Age is before the Romans, the Persians, the Sumerians, it's before everything else, where there was still slavery, where women with poor property, this is the world in which he lives, and they've got great female characters. I just, a couple weeks ago, I just discovered Ralph Bakshi's Fire and Ice, one of the sort of fantasy movies he did after The Lord of the Rings, and that thing is like a 24 frame per second pinup calendar, because all what happens through most of the show is there's a damsel in distress wearing basically less than a bikini who goes around just swooning over everything and falling over and her legs and her ass are just like, you know, <laughs> disproportionately towards the camera. Like, there's none of that in Conan. In Sounds Conan, like a sexy Jar Jar Binks. Tripping over everything and getting in oh, trouble. Yes. But I mean, at least in Conan, if he's going to focus on a woman, it's because there is something redeeming to the woman. The woman isn't just a passive sex object who needs to be rescued and conquered. Not just. Mm. Not, not only. Not just. <laughs> and on that quick note, we are going to take a break and we will be right back with High Point, Low Point. And we are back on Radio versus the Martians. We are talking Conan the Barbarian and it's time for High Point, Low Point, where we go to the top of the mountain and the bottom of the barrel. I am going to start with you, Paul. What is the low point of Conan? Uh, it's so hard to choose because, as I said earlier, pastiching Robert E. Howard, especially his Conan stuff, people think that it's easy because his style is so pronounced, because his style is so idiosyncratic. And as we've seen so many times, it's been really badly executed. But I think probably the worst would have been the Conan the Adventurer Saturday morning cartoon. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Can I I can make a quick confession? That was my first exposure to Conan the character. Uh <laughs> I don't feel proud of that. As long as it leads you to good places, that's cool, I suppose. Oh god, it's an ill wind that blows no I don't know. No, this was a terrible <laughs> cartoon. <laughs> 
I can see some fucking dumb TV network executive sitting around going, you know, what licenses can we just grind some money out of? And, you know, somebody going, well, Conan. And he went, well, I know who Conan is. Everybody knows who Conan is. It's got name recognition. And so, yeah, they just proceeded to cut the shit out of everything and force it into that weird, uncomfortable mold, which it doesn't fit into at all, even vaguely. And yeah, you ended up with a series where Conan as He-Man analog runs around with his magic sword that turns snake people into mist or some damn thing, puts them into other dimension or something. Ah, God. And his like, you know, lovable comedy sidekick buddies. Yeah, just awful. (laughs) That's my low point is I think, you know, of all of the terrible adaptions, of all of the horrific things, of all of the Conan alikes, that one is for me the absolute bottom of the barrel yeah i used to wake up at 6 a.m every day and watch that show (laughs) and it's weird i enjoyed it but then i was like 10 years old at the time and that was my exposure to conan and after i was done with it that's why i didn't go back to conan for a really long time Mm. it had the same problem that thundar had at least thundar came up with the idea of giving him basically a lightsaber which is you can't slice the shit out of people in a children's cartoon You aren't allowed to do half of the things that Conan does and is famous for doing, and we love him doing, which is ravishing the babes and cutting men Mm. in two. He basically just has a magic sword. He taps them with it, and, you know, they get beamed to another dimension. It cuts all the fun, visceral, satisfactory, fuck yeah moments out of the character. And like you said, he's basically just He-Man with darkened hair. You want to know something even worse? What's that? I was just checking the Wikipedia page, and apparently Conan the Adventurer performed much better than its follow-up, Conan and the Young Warriors. Oh, dear God. Yes. Yeah. There was a follow-up to this series, and it was worse. <laughs> Please tell me this isn't Conan hanging out with a group of kids. Yeah, it's going to be. That's exactly what Conan it is. Conan and his little buddies going out, and he's going to teach them how to rape and murder. <laughs> They're learning from the best. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> and incidentally, this is also my low point, Paul. Sorry that we had to come into synchronicity here. Yeah, the animation was done by a French-Canadian company, but it was produced by the same studio that did He-Man. Ooh. No big shock there that Sunbow did both of them. It's just so weird to me thinking that Saturday morning cartoons were in the 90s, this weird, fertile ground for adapting things that just should never have been adapted for children. I'm thinking of like Troma's Toxic Crusaders, which is an adaptation of Toxic Avenger, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Tales from the Crypt Keeper. Like, Robocop. Which, uh, 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 Fucking uh, right, right. Robocop. And, and yeah. also, you know, my favorite is Highlander, which is like, you, of course, you can't do a show that's all about beheading people as a Saturday morning cartoon. That's what Highlander is about. You just beam his head to another dimension. <laughs> if, right? if you did, I would watch the hell out of that. That would be a great cartoon. I'd be all over that action. For, for all the reasons that you said before, this was such a just a laughable blunder of it, and, and watching it is just goofy. Just to make Conan so bloodless, and make him a good guy, right? Make him a white hat. You effectively sapped all the things that make Conan Conan. Greg? I hesitate to join the dog pile on the cartoons because I, I never actually watched them. I could tell just from the ad that this is not Conan. I don't need to bother. My low point is the live action adaptations that I already spoke about because they were actually disappointing. You know, I went into them expecting something and got nothing. I did not get what I had hoped for. And that, to me, is much more of a low point than a cartoon that I can tell pretty much from the get-go is going to suck. Even when I was 11 or 12 years old, I kind of knew what Conan was supposed to be from the comics. Mm. I don't think I would have bothered to check out the cartoon. 
The equivalent for me for that kind of cartoon disappointment, oddly enough, also came from Filmation. It was uh, Tarzan, Lord of the Jungle. The embarrassing thing is, it is the closest anyone has ever got to really doing Burroughs on screen, was that cartoon. Really? Filmation is better than somebody for once? (laughs) Yeah. Well, no, Filmation, you got to give them credit for a lot of stuff. They broke a lot of ground, and this is probably a whole other show. But Filmation really were my gateway drug to superheroes and comics with the Superman Mm. and Aquaman hour way back in the day. When they got the DC licenses, they did them proud, especially. This was in the glory days of 1966 and 67 when a character on Saturday morning television could throw a punch and land it. Yeah. When, yeah. you know, mm. you could break stuff. Right. It was Peggy Charon and her parents' crusade that came along and suddenly everything on Saturday morning was Scooby-Doo and the cooperative beavers and, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, you know, let's all hold hands and cooperate our way to victory. And, and it was just, it was... I want those people to meet Conan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, you go from Space Ghost and the Herculoids to Kid Power, and oh my God. Uh, I'm telling you, it had exactly the reverse effect on me. That was the year I became a homicidal child. It was not watching Space Ghost. It was having Space Ghost taken away. But really, to get back to it, the low point for me is the live action adaptations. I even tried the TV show with, I think his name is Rolf Rolf Mueller. Mueller. Yeah, and I'm telling you, he makes Arnold look Shakespearean. He's, he's, <laughs> you know, he lumbers through every scene like, you know. Not like a panther. <laughs> no, no, there is nothing pantherish about Rolf at all. He's what you imagine if you unburied the heads on Easter Island. He's got, <laughs> you know, just kind of project that out to a full figure. And that's kind of how Rolf moves through a scene. So that's my low point. Okay, for me... It actually comes from a Howard story, not a bad adaptation, but a Howard story itself. And this is the end of a story that he wrote called The Frost Giant's Daughter. Now, I first want to start by saying this is a good story. Right up until the very end, it's a great story. This is one that starts with Conan in the aftermath of this vicious battle. He's been left for dead. He's bleeding out. He's the lone survivor. He's surrounded by the corpses of people on his side and the other side. He's in the far north, and he's very likely about to start freezing to death. And suddenly a magical, beautiful, and mostly not clothed woman appears to him and starts taunting him, teasing him, flirting with him, giggling, saying, I bet you can't catch me. This gives Conan the strength to get up. He follows her up the hill, follows her through the blizzard, through the mountains, and suddenly he finds himself led into the ambush of a couple of her brothers who are a pair of frost giants. Conan does what Conan always does when he's led into an ambush. He carves the fucking shit out of these guys, just cuts them to pieces. Suddenly, this woman who's been taunting him and flirting with him and teasing him and telling, come on, follow me, follow me, she's not laughing anymore. It's clear there were never any romantic intentions here. She was never planning on fooling around with Conan up in the frosty north. This was always about leading him into a murder, and it didn't work out. Now, this is the part of the story where it all falls apart for me, because if at this point Conan had simply swung his sword at her and tried to kill her, I could live with it. This is a prehistoric age where people are not exactly enlightened, even if they're really smart. I think it's important to read a story both with the context of the time at which it's written and the time at which it takes place. Conan's a prehistoric character written by a Texan in the 30s. I can live with that. However, this is my card line. Instead of trying to kill her, which I could totally deal with, Conan grabs her and tries to force her to the ground. Conan was in the mood to have sex, and he's going to have sex whether she wants to or not. And at that point, there's a flash of light as she calls to her deity father, who's like the frost god Ymir, and she disappears, leaving only her scarf. Let's really, really talk about this for a second. 
the hero of the story just tried to rape a woman. I can deal with a guy who will carve people to death, who will rob them and take their shit. But there's certain things that if you're going to tell me this guy is a hero and that I should root for him, that's a line I can't have crossed. And it really makes Mm. me feel really fucking icky. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're right that it's inexcusable. For some reason, reading it, it just never struck me that way. I guess I just kind of figured her as being the equivalent of a siren. And once she turned her mojo on, she couldn't turn it off. That was kind of how I always read it. But it is worth noting that that was a story that was rejected. It was never published until DeCamp unearthed it. You know, and that was when they were publishing everything, laundry lists, anything. Mm. So it may well be that the editor of Weird Tales was kind of icked out and didn't take it. It's freaky to me. I guess it, the fact that you can try to write, oh, he's only an attempted rapist, not much better. No. Not much better. <laughs> no. Yeah. No. It's, I'm not defending it in no, any way. No, I, I get that. that. I can that, see why that. they rejected it in the 1930s, because even yeah. then, there are certain things you just don't have the good guy do. Well, I mean, yeah. if you think about it, there was a not too long, I don't, I don't know how, how far in the 20th century this changed, but your wife was your property, your woman was your property, and so there was no such thing as raping your own wife, right? Like, you couldn't be convicted in a court in America for forcing yourself on your own wife, you know? And Phyllis Schlafly fought hard to keep it that way. Mm, right, well, mm. right, right. So, which is in no way excusing it. No, it's no. Just, and in fact, just, it shows how deeply entrenched that mentality right, was. Right. So in some sense, mm. I can certainly say that is being a product of its time. But yeah, I think the comic book adaptation that you loaned me, Mike, the, of the Frost Giant's daughter, I think they, did they gloss over that? Did they somehow soften that moment? Because I didn't catch it. No, it's in there. He grabs her and holds her to him and he makes a remark about the coldness of her skin. It says, I'll light a fire in you. It's pretty clearly implied. Mm. Interestingly enough, I must have missed it. No, but I mean, it is, it is unfortunate and it almost makes you not want it to be part of the canon because Conan's not a scoundrel. He's not that kind of guy. Yeah. Mm. There is kind of this unspoken agreement among most of us to just kind of ignore that part because DeCamp in many of almost all of his introductions to the various Conan books, I was just looking, he introduced one of the Jordan collections and I was looking at that one and he talks about Conan's rough chivalry. Mm. You just can't bend this incident to fit into that idea of rough chivalry. There's just Mm. no way to do it. Mm. He is not chivalrous. No. But we all have kind of just... eh, she had mojo she got away we're just not going to talk about it that's kind of the unspoken agreement among most of us for many years so on that happy note (laughs) it's time to self to pull ourselves out of the stygian abyss and back to the highlands of samaria with high point they're talking about the best of conan the non-rapey bits of conan (laughs) and i want to start with you paul where is conan at his best what is the high point For me, the high point, this is such a terrible cop-out, but for me, the high point is the writing of Robert E. Howard. I mentioned it earlier, and it is just so damn good. It's so readable. He's an absolute master of conjuring up these absolutely sumptuous, rich, just glorious visions and vistas in really quite a sparing use of words. The Hyborian Age is this wonderfully detailed, gloriously panorama of places and people and scenes and cities and cultures, and he creates it in such richness that it it almost feels like being there. 
And to throw on top of that, he's so good at describing action as well. His action sequences just crackle along at a blistering pace. They're really exciting. They're really visceral. And you you really, really get into them. So for me, the way Robert E. Howard tells these stories, that makes them so damn good. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think that there's something about this world that's varied. And I don't think I've seen it in fantasy up until we saw this in George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. A lot of fantasy stories tend to stick to just one climate. They're sort of English, medieval sort of period. I mean, there's a bit mm. of mythology mixed in with history, but it's usually just one locale and one kind of mythology. But Conan really kind of runs the gamut that you see him mm. in stories that take place in the equivalent of Africa or Southeast Asia or India, Pakistan stories that take place in the far north and sort of this Viking Nordic kind of culture. And you see this character really as a globetrotter, not just across something that's essentially just England with the label scraped off, but yep. a real sense of a global traveler that you really get to go to really exotic places where he really is, like you said earlier, Greg, he's an outsider. Mm. It really is an amazingly compelling world in that way. Well, there was a lot of that in the old pulps. A lot of the pulps were travel stories, were tales of adventure and exotic climbs, tales of the South Seas or fistfights in the Yukon or wading your way through the Amazon or deepest, darkest Africa. And I think really how it sort of latched onto that desire for foreign climbs and foreign places. And he conjured up these absolutely wonderful locations for his adventures. And he delivered them so evocatively with such an economy of language. I mean, he gets compared to Lovecraft quite a lot for the floweriness of his language, but I think he never overwrites. His work is so punchy and so absorbing. Yeah, it's just remarkable stuff. Oh, Howard has it all over Lovecraft in terms of the writing. I mean, Howard actually was able to do dialogue. He was able to actually get out in the world and talk to people and create, you know, different voices. Lovecraft kind of falls on his face there a lot of the time. Mm. Casey, high point. Once again, Paul and I are in sync. I was going to cheat and just say, oh, well, all of Howard's stories are the best thing, right? <laughs> but, there, but there are probably better stories that capture Conan's character better. But for me, reading through them, my favorite is The Tower of the Elephant. And in looking through the adaptations, it seems like it's a favorite of a lot of writers who have carried on Conan's stories. It shows the side of Conan as the merciless, amoral, opportunistic guy that he really is. So he basically is in a town. He overhears about a valuable jewel called the Heart of the Elephant, held by an evil sorcerer named Yara, and attempts to break into this impossibly well-guarded tower. And after sort of losing a companion and he battling a vicious giant spider, Conan runs into the prisoner of this sorcerer by the name of Yagkosha. And Yagkosha is an extraterrestrial, looks like the Hindu god Ganesh, a elephant head on a man's body, but instead of being just sort of another evil creature for him to bludgeon to death or something, he finds him really that this creature has been blinded and tortured by this sorcerer for centuries because this creature has some kind of a magical power that allows to be siphoned by the sorcerer or something. Very seldom have I seen Howard draw a sense of pathos for a character in the Conan series. You know, Conan does mm. commit genocide more than a few times, so how sentimental could he be, right? But for this character, for Yagkosha, it gives you a feeling of something in his story that is ancient and precious as well. And here's what really blows my socks off about this. 
It's also Howard's way of injecting some pretty fantastical sci-fi elements into this fantasy story because Yakosha mm. provides the explanatory mythos of how magic exists in the Hyborian Age. Magic exists because this character and his race of people had some power of magic and it was sort of siphoned through him and he's been sort of harvested this whole time of his magical power. So I love sci-fi more than fantasy, so this is what totally made my ears perk up. But I just love how it not only enriched the Conan stories by giving it this whole other dimension to it, but it just expanded the boundaries of the scope of the narrative so large that I wouldn't expect out of just, you know, swords and wizards. The thing that I kind of got with it is almost Lovecraftian, the idea of this ancient deity coming into the world, unlike the ones in the Lovecraft stories, which again are just here to basically harvest us for food, the idea of one that's actually benevolent, mm. just wants to escape, that just wants to have its life back and thought that it found in this human somebody that it could teach its skills to and they could be a great wizard, and but that just wasn't good enough. And then seeing this ancient powerful being sort of broken and used essentially as a tool, having Conan have that sort of moment of decency where he wants to help mm. it. What I found kind of interesting about Tower of the Elephant is that it feels the most like a Dungeons and Dragons module of any fantasy story I've ever read. <laughs> Conan has a quest to steal a thing from a top of a tower, which is guarded by soldiers and monsters and things that are beyond his understanding. And he has to be clever and overcome traps. And he briefly teams up with another master thief who teaches him a few tricks, battles a spider and has to overcome what is essentially its secret weakness. Mm. I really like this story. And like you, I see the mark of another writer in Tower of the Elephant. Reading the last third of Tower of the Elephant always puts me in mind of a writer called Clark Ashton Smith, who's one of the really good cosmic fantasy author guys. You know, he's very much in that same school as Lovecraft and was, you know, writing that sort of cosmic science fiction-y fantasy kind of material. And the thing I love about it is that Clark Ashton Smith and Howard are polar opposites. They're so different in the way they write, in the way they tell stories, and in the stories they tell. And I just read Tower of the Elephant, and it amazes me with what virtuosity Howard manages to blend those two together. Because the first bit, the bit with teaming up with the thief and fighting the panthers and battling the giant spider is all pure Conan. And he starts out going, there's a thing in there. It might be sacred to some people, but fuck them. I'm going to nick it anyway. <laughs> pure Conan. That's absolute total Howard there. Conan doesn't care, wants to steal it. It's rich. Let's go. And the bit with the elephant god where he's sort of learning about what's happened and the compassion at the end, it's so disparate, but it just weaves in together, you know, seamlessly. There's no point at which you go, well, that sounds like somebody's tacked two stories together. It's really beautifully written. And it's so different to the rest of the Conan stuff as well. I was just going to make the point that you guys are not the only ones that love it. Roy Thomas loved it so much that he adapted it for Marvel Comics twice. Hmm. Once in the regular monthly comic and then again in Savage Sword. And Savage Sword, hmm. I think, is the infinitely more superior version. That's the, oh. it, First of all, it's longer. It's got the John Buscema, Alfredo Alcala art. It's just mm. a staggeringly gorgeous piece. Not only that, but it's constantly mentioned as being one of the best. I believe it got a special little limited edition illustrated book of its own. This was in the mid-70s when they did a lot of these like limited edition art print Frazetta kinds of things. It wasn't Frazetta that worked on this, but it was like that. And Tower of the Elephant was one of the ones that got picked for that treatment. I like it a lot, too. It's not my favorite, but I certainly can see why people love it so much. It was, I believe, the first pure Howard 
Conan prose story that I read. When I got bit by the bug and ran out and bought paperbacks, I bought what I thought was the first one. <laughs> it was just called Conan. And it was supposed to be the first because, you know, I'm a big nerd and I start at the beginning and I, I have all my ducks in a row and all my spines on the shelf are aligned. And it's sad and pathetic, really. But, uh, <laughs> you, know, but uh, you know, Conan was one of the paperbacks that DeCamp and Carter really kind of ran through the Mixmaster. So you don't really get to Howard till you're, you know, a third of the way through the book because you have to go through pastiches by DeCamp and Carter and so on. And it's kind of uh, like a... A metaphor for a Conan story. You've got to overcome the tra traps before you can get to the treasure. <laughs> but suddenly mm. I got to an actual real Howard Conan story, and you could tell right away that this was the real stuff. So putting the fake pastiche Conan aside, Greg, what's your high point? Oddly enough, I almost can't do that. I mean, in terms of the stories, the books themselves, my personal high point is the three mm. science fiction book club hardcover Conan editions by Carl Wagner from the 70s. There's mm. one called The People of the Black Circle. The second volume is Red Nails. The third one is The Hour of the Dragon. And those three volumes were kind of done in reaction to what DeCamp and Carter were doing. Wagner felt very strongly that should be an edition of just Howard Conan that was in print, period. Mm. Not looted from the archives, not the rejects from the personal papers. These are the Howard stories as they appeared in print, the end. And mm. as far as published Howard goes, that's kind of my high point. I can appreciate the beautiful editions that have come out since, and I have an irrational juvenile fondness for the Frazetta paperbacks that DeCamp and Carter kind of peed all over and <laughs> made a mess of, just because those were my first introductions, and I, I have those at home as well. But really, when you get right down to it, for me, my high point was 77 and 78 when I first discovered this stuff and was just wallowing in it and couldn't believe that there was so much of it out there because that was the real renaissance. You had the paperback explosion. You had all the companion volumes, all the other Robert E. Howard books coming out from Zebra, like mm. The Sowers of the Thunder and Worms of the Earth and all these beautiful Viking press hardcovers with the illustrations by Jeff Jones and Roy Crinkle and those guys. You had the fanzines that were almost prozines. You had people like Jim Steranko contributing to fanzines like Amra and Lone Star Fictioneer that were all built around Robert E. Howard. There was there were ancillary projects that probably wouldn't have existed without the Robert E. Howard Sword and Sorcery Revolution with like Ariel, the Book of Fantasy. Mm. And there was this period where you could get Frank Frazetta or Boris Vallejo or Jeff Jones to paint a half-naked guy with a sword and you'd slap it on the front of some hack book somewhere and you'd make money. You would turn a profit. Mm. That era, just I have such fondness for that. I remember sneaking out of the house and taking the bus downtown, which I was totally forbidden to do, going to Looking Glass Books, which was a head shop in downtown Portland that carried underground comics and <laughs> Frazetta paperbacks and all the forbidden things that were advertised in the back of comics at the time that I thought you had to mail away for. And Looking Glass had them on the shelf. Mm. And that's really, that was my sword and sorcery renaissance. And that remains a high point for me. I think for me, the high point is what we're living in right now. Stuff is so much more readily available and easy to get than it's ever been before. I think this is the best time to be a nerd that we've ever had. That so much stuff that you practically had to go on a real treasure hunt for at conventions and used bookstores to get, you can get complete now. 
It's amazing because you look at what Dark Horse Comics has done with the Conan license. Not only are they keeping new Conan comics coming out and getting top name talent to do them. I mean, they've gotten Kurt Busiek, who is really a big name in comic books. He's done The Avengers and countless other things. He's done Astro City. He really relaunched Conan with Kerry Nord, who's just a brilliant artist. Mm. They've continued to consistently put out new books and new miniseries. And P. Craig Russell did a great adaptation of The Jewels of Gwalur as a miniseries. People of the Black Circle was adapted into a miniseries by Fred Van Lente, who's really good, and I'm a big fan of his work on Archer and Armstrong and The Incredible Hercules. There's so much stuff, and if that was all they had, that would be really great on its own. But mm. they're bringing back all the old stuff in print, too. There are now 17 volumes collecting all of the Conan stories from Savage Sword of Conan. They did another volume with all of the Solomon Kane stories from those books. They're bringing back all of the books that were published under Marvel Comics Conan the Barbarian series. There's like 24 or 25 volumes of that so far, and they're still publishing more of them, with a lot of stories by Roy Thomas about his experiences writing the book. Not only that, but you can get all of the Conan Howard stuff completely without the editing of El Sprague de Camp in these great Del Rey collections that are readily available and that you can get all the Conan you could possibly want. And it's right at your fingertips. And there has never been a better time to be curious about Conan because there's no work involved with trying it. And that to me is the high point of Conan the Barbarian. And with that, I want to thank our panelists for joining us one more time. Paul Rue, my good friend from the late and lamented Mike and Paul Save the Universe. Paul, thank you again for joining us. It's been too long. It's been an absolute gas as usual. And Greg Hatcher from the Comic Book Resources Comics Should Be Good blog. Thank you again for joining us, sir. Always a pleasure. And as always, Mr. Casey Doran. By Crom, it was glorious. <laughs> and, <laughs> and on that note, we will catch you next month with another episode of Radio vs. the Martians. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. prayed to you before. I have no tongue for it. No one, not even you will remember if we were good men or bad, why we fought or why we died. No. All that matters is that two stood against many. That's what's important. Barbara pleases you, Kram. So grant me one request. Grant me revenge. And if you do not listen, then the hell with you.